Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. From the High Center Studios of Messiah College in the Shark Tank of Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Thank you, Drew, and welcome to episode 21 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. It is finally starting to get warm here at the Way of Improvement Leads Home headquarters, And when the weather finally starts to turn, it always gets me thinking about graduation and then preparing for the next school year. So what better time than now to turn our attention to the continued importance of the liberal arts in today's society? Couldn't agree more, John. And I mean, to be fair, we've addressed this issue a bit on some previous episodes coming at it from different directions, but today we're going to tackle it head on. We're going to break down the value of liberal arts and humanities education in a STEM-obsessed world. Yeah, that's right, Drew. It makes sense uh, since I've been repeating both on the podcast and on the blog that we need good historical thinking now more than ever, especially as we go through this time of great political change uh, and, dare I say, political danger that we're experiencing right now in the United States. I mean, think about it. We have a president whose only bona fides are running a business and who legitimates his power by saying that politics is broken and a heavy dose of corporate thinking is the way to fix it. You know, that's a really big claim. And it's one that I think we can debate in part by thinking uh, historically. I mean, I think getting an answer to this question is pretty important moving forward. And you bringing up the business side of of our president's resume makes me think about all these think pieces that I keep seeing uh, on the internet talking about how the left should respond to Trumpism by nominating Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, assuming that the problem is that Democrats have been too anti-corporate. I don't know about you, John, but I think that's pretty narrow thinking, and I relish the opportunity to throw my hat or for us to throw our hat into the discussion. But we shouldn't be limiting the conversation just to contemporary politics. I think you know better than most that the humanities is a field of undergraduate studies in crisis. I know that as someone who hopefully will be looking for a job here in the field soon. But at the same time, I know in your your work on the blog and as a, a chair of a history department, you haven't given up or become fatalistic. 
Yeah, well, I must admit that I, I have had my moments of fatalism, Drew. Uh, anyone who reads the Way of Improvement Leads Home blog, you know, just go back and read the blog in the months, June, July, uh, the fall of 2016. I was pretty down in the dumps about the fate of the humanities in American life. And then by extension, you know, the fate of the kind of enduring questions about human flourishing and what makes a good society that the study of the humanities always raise. You know, but I think I'm slowly starting to come out of the funk. Uh, I was on sabbatical last year. I've gotten back into the classroom. The classroom always gives me hope. I just came back from a trip from a liberal arts college up in uh, New England, Gordon College on Boston's North Shore. I gave a lecture on why history and the humanities is essential to our democratic life here in the United States. And, you know, I come back encouraged by some of the feedback I got from students, by some of the faculty up there at this New England Liberal Arts College. Uh, and I think I'm, I'm becoming more encouraged again about the possibilities. I think if there's a silver lining in the Trump election, it's the way it has mobilized historians, humanists, and just the liberal arts community generally to articulate what they are all about and why they are significant. Again, for those of you who read the blog, I just wrote a post uh, the other day, a very popular post, actually, one of the more popular posts of the last month or so, about the revival of the history major at Yale University. History is now the most popular major among the Yale class of 2019. Popular, again, who, who thought, you know, how many places can say history is the most popular major? So this is, this is very encouraging news. It seems as if young people and maybe even their parents are starting to come around to the idea that history, the study of history, the humanities are desperately needed in our culture today. So again, very, very good news here. Yeah, and and I mean, I think that extends just, I mean, beyond just the culture, American culture, and 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 the well-informed citizen. You know, while I admittedly have stuck with academia since getting my BA, that wasn't my initial intention. Uh, I came here to Messiah and decided to study liberal arts because I thought it was a great way for me to learn how to think critically and then go into a, a totally different field. But uh, you know, and I'm sure you brought this up. One of the biggest issues for you is simply getting new students to declare themselves as history majors. Yeah, of course. And we're actually going to talk about this today with with our guests. I've worked hard to try to get my students, their parents, and even the history community at large uh, through the blog, through speaking and so forth, to celebrate students who major in history or another humanities or liberal arts discipline and then go on to use their skills that they learn in all kinds of jobs and vocations, not just the sort of history profession. I think too often history departments tend to celebrate the students who go off to grad school and, you know, they kind of be, we celebrate the ones who become just like us, right, who become professors. But those who pursue a professional career in history represent a small number of graduates, uh, history majors. I read somewhere that most history majors actually go to work in the business world. Uh, these are the stories we need to celebrate if we want to make the study of history compelling to high school students uh, and even undeclared students. And speaking of new students picking a major, Drew, we have a bonus guest in the studio today. That we do. But before we turn to her, I do want to mention that our work here wouldn't be possible without the generous donations of Lisa DeGuardi and Ron Schooler, along with many, many other patrons. If you are interested in supporting our work here at The Way of Improvement Leads Home, consider joining our Patreon campaign. Simply go to thewayofimprovement.com and click support. We still have plenty of pledge goodies to give away. And we will continue to have them. Yes. 
But as regular listeners may also know, this is the time when we usually, usually announce our official sponsor, Jennings College Consulting. However, today we have the brains behind that operation, Dr. Peggy Jennings herself here in the studio. We thought, what better episode than this to bring on our f- official business partner to talk about her work? But before we turn to Peggy, we do have a small confession. Dr. Jennings is more than just a business partner. In fact, calling her Peggy is a little weird for me, as I know her as mom. That being said, her work pairs very nicely with what we are doing here on the podcast, so it just simply made sense to make the partnership more official. Absolutely, Drew. We have our sponsor in the studio. Uh, Peggy Jennings is here. Welcome to the podcast, Peggy. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Well, let's start uh, with your own education and experience, because I have to say uh, your experience is pretty extensive. Well, thank you. Um, I started my career in college student affairs and did residence life, freshman orientation, academic advising, academic support, my most recent position was associate dean at Dickinson College. Right. But then I took sort of a shift and then spent the next 15 years as a high school gifted support teacher, which involves mostly helping gifted students plan for college, but also adapting their high school curriculum for their needs. But uh, the last two and a half, three years, I've been um, a private uh, consultant specializing in college admissions. Educationally, I have my bachelor's from DePaul University in Indiana, where I majored in history. Um, I have a master's um, in counseling from Miami University in Ohio, and my doctorate is from Indiana University in Indiana in higher education. And I'm also one of 300 certified educational planners in the country. Wonderful. So so a history major. Yes. Right? At a great liberal arts school. We are just <laughs> talking about that off air here. Um, about about DePaul. Um, so what do you do at Jennings College Consulting? Tell us about your work there. Um, well, the college admissions process has gotten increasingly complex, increasingly expensive, and very high stakes. And while school counselors are wonderful, hardworking people, they are often overwhelmed with caseloads that run as many as 100 or 200 students. So for f- some families, um, they would like a little bit extra Uh, help and support in the process. So I can provide in-depth, personalized support for families. I work with fewer than 25 students at a time. We start very early. We meet often. Uh, I can meet with parents. I can meet in the evenings and on weekends and support students um, as they go and their parents as they go through that process. I do want to get specific to what we're doing here. How would you advise a bright student interested in history or philosophy or some other humanities field uh, you know, who are, you know, maybe hesitant about going into one of these disciplines because they're not sure they can do anything with it or something like that. Even the parents, right? How would you advise the parents, you know, to to go into one of these fields, realizing they're footing the bill for a lot of uh, a lot of money, especially if they're at a liberal arts college or a private institution? What advice would you give? Because I deal with this every day, right? Trying to convince kids to major in history. Mm-hmm. Uh, give me some help. Well, I think there's a very clear distinction between education and training. And um, studying in the humanities and more broadly in the liberal arts um, can really give students, I think, a more comprehensive and nuanced view of the world as it is now and as it was. Um, The human condition doesn't change that much over the Mm -hmm. centuries. What changes is the context and the specifics of what's going on. Um, And of course, you know, students and parents are worried about their uh, students spending the money and, and getting a job. 
more and more colleges, and especially liberal arts colleges, are using internships and summer programs to help students get that kind of technical or specific training that they might need to move more easily into a particular job. Students, um, we know, are going to change their mind multiple times. They're going to change careers multiple times. And I think they're more valuable if they're well-educated first. We know that technical companies, companies that deal with engineers and technicians are crying out for employees who are well-educated and that they can then train for their specific needs, but whose basic background has been to be broadly educated. Let's get to the nitty gritty here. If our listeners are either high school age students or more likely parents with high school age students, how might they how might they hire you to help with the college uh, selection process? Where do we find you? Well, first of all, I'd encourage them to start early. Freshman and sophomore year of high school is not too soon to be able to do good long range planning, but they can find me on my webpage. Uh, they can Google Jennings College Consulting, or the web address is drj the number four, college.com. I will provide a free one-hour consultation either in person or by video conference for anyone who just wants to find out what I do and whether working together makes sense for them. I'd be delighted to talk with them. Excellent. Peggy, we thank you every other week here at the podcast for your support of what we're doing here. Now I'm privileged to thank you in person uh, (laughs) for supporting us. It was great to have you with us here today. Thank you so very much for having me. Okay, okay. Before my mom starts pulling out baby pictures, you have a story for us, John. In 2013, then-U.S. Senator Jeff Sessions of Alabama, who at the time was the ranking Republican member of the Senate Budget Committee, raised issues about a National Endowment for the Humanities program called Enduring Questions. This program provided grants to university professors who wanted to develop courses based around such questions as, what is the meaning of life? And what is the good life? And how do I live it? Sessions was also bothered that the National Endowment for the Humanities granted professors funds to study Islam. At the time, Sessions believed that taxpayer money should not be used to support subjects related to questions that are, quote unquote, indefinite or that favor one religion over another. The House of Representatives Budget Committee agreed with Sessions. In its fiscal 2014 budget resolution, the committee called for a complete elimination of funding for the National Endowment for the Humanities based on the belief that the federal government should not be in the business of supporting humanities-based research. In the end, the committee let the National Endowment for the Humanities live but elected to slash its budget by 49%. Lest one think that the failure of politicians and political leaders to see the importance of the humanities to American life is only a Republican thing, it is worth noting that President Barack Obama was no friend of this kind of learning and thinking. When it came to education funding, President Obama always threw his weight behind the so-called STEM disciplines, science, technology, engineering, and math. He ended the funding for the Teaching of American History grants, 
which was a program from the Department of Education that infused school districts with millions of dollars for the purpose of strengthening the teaching of our shared past. And he even argued that some liberal arts degrees, he specifically mentioned art history, offered poor preparation for the job market. And now we enter the age of Trump. In March 2017, Trump issued his first federal budget plan. It eliminates, among other things, the National Endowment for the Humanities. Practically speaking, the National Endowment for the Humanities operates on a minuscule budget of $148 million. That represents 0.003% of federal spending in 2016. Apparently, our president thinks that this money would be better used to pay for a massive border wall or the buildup of what is already the largest and most powerful military in the world history. Trump, it seems, wants the government to get out of the business of funding projects that might lead to compassion for those such as refugees and immigrants and others who may be in need. It should alarm us that Trump prefers spending more money on fighter jets than he does on research that might bring peaceful and humane solutions to global problems. The National Endowment for the Humanities was created by the National Foundation on the Arts and the Humanities Act and was signed into law by Lyndon Johnson in 1965. Several things are worth noting about this act. First, it affirmed that an advanced civilization must not limit its efforts to science and technology alone, but must also support, quote, great branches of scholarly and cultural activity in order to achieve a better understanding of the past, a better analysis of the present, and a better view of the future, unquote. Second, it affirmed that, quote, democracy requires wisdom and vision in its citizens, unquote and must provide citizens with education and access to the arts and the humanities in order to, quote, make people of all backgrounds and wherever located masters of their technology and not its unthinking servants, unquote. Third, it affirmed that the arts and humanities reflect Americans' respect for the nation's rich cultural heritage and foster respect for our country's vast diversity. And fourth, it affirmed that, quote, the world leadership which has come to the United States cannot rely solely upon superior power, wealth, and technology, but must be solidly founded upon worldwide respect and admiration for the nation's high qualities as a leader in the realm of ideas and of the spirit, unquote. Perhaps Donald Trump has not read the text of this important act, or perhaps he has read it and simply does not care. I have seen two basic but ultimately unconvincing arguments for eliminating the National Endowment for the Humanities. The first argument suggests that American society does not need the humanities, rejecting the entire philosophy behind the 1965 act that created the National Endowment. Trump wants to eliminate an agency that will help our democracy to thrive, 
The humanities cultivate the pursuit of truth and evidence-based arguments, empathy for the views of others, civic understanding and an awareness that we are members of a human community that is larger than ourselves or our current moment in time. The second argument against the National Endowment for the Humanities is made by libertarian-leaning politicians who appreciate what the humanities bring to United States society, but do not think that the federal government should be in the business of promoting them. I would be sympathetic to this argument if I believed that private and corporate interests would step up with the money necessary to support the humanities and the cultural institutions that bring them to life for millions of Americans. Our shared culture and traditions are constantly evolving and changing to meet the needs of the people who invoke them. The preservation and reinterpretation of these traditions and the democratic virtues that come with such activity need support. Do we really want to trust the treasured traditions, stories, and markers of our collective or group identities to a capitalist market that is driven predominantly by the pursuit of profit at all costs? The grand stories of our national identity have a good chance of surviving under such privatization. We will continue to hear, read, and learn about Gettysburg, Paul Revere, women's suffrage, and Martin Luther King Jr., But what will happen to our ability to tell the local and regional stories that have given given meaning to life in small places? Who will fund the work of telling stories of everyday world changers who have been forgotten because they do not conform easily to our national narratives? Can we rely on those in the private sector to care about the experience a child might have at a small museum or historical site? an experience that could change her life and reorient her way of seeing the world? In Donald Trump's America, study and reflection on these kinds of things do not matter. We may be on the brink of a cultural holocaust, and we all have a responsibility to prevent it from happening. Make America great again. Scott Hartley is a venture capitalist and author. He has served as a Presidential Innovation Fellow at the White House, a partner at Moore Davidow Ventures, and a venture partner at Metamorphic Ventures. Prior to venture capital, Scott worked at Google, Facebook, and Harvard's Berkman Center for Internet and Society. He has been a contributing author at MIT Press and has written for the Financial Times, Forbes, Inc., Foreign Policy, and the Boston Review. His newest book, The Fuzzy and the Techie, Why the Liberal Arts Will Rule the Digital World, is available April 25th, 2017. Our guest today on the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast is Scott Hartley, the author of a brand new book, The Fuzzy and the Techie, Why the Liberal Arts Will Rule the Digital World. Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So tell me a little bit more. Uh, you know, again, we have our audience are mostly people who are interested in, in history, right? So tell us, tell me a little bit more about yourself, your work. You know, some may not even be familiar. Some of our audience may not even be familiar with what a venture capitalist or global startup advisor uh, even does. So, you know, what do you do for a living? What is, what, right. what is your day-to-day experience like on, in the marketplace? These are, these are great questions. Um, well, so venture capital is effectively, it, it provides early stage uh, startup risk capital to companies that are trying to get off the ground. 
Um, so typically, you know, the way venture capital works is uh, you're part of a fund, and a fund is made up of a number of, uh, you know, limited partners or, or different uh, different pension funds, university endowments, maybe high net worth individuals or family offices that contribute into a fund, and then that pool of capital is managed by a few people. And uh, they effectively meet with startups and entrepreneurs uh, thinking about different business ideas, different ways to, quote unquote, disrupt markets. And, uh, you know, and, and they sort of uh, they meet with a number of those people and they they think through where they think the market is going, what's been tried before, what may or may not work. Um, and then, you know, they really sort of base uh, an investment decision around the team and the idea and the market size. Uh, and then they make a small investment in that team and then they, they basically work. Um, with those entrepreneurs through the process of creating a company, um, you know, helping them uh, figure out sort of the best uses of capital, maybe their their hiring timeline, you know, how to best allocate the resources uh, to, to to try different things and test hypotheses, um, and then basically, uh, you know, if that's successful, you know, many companies go out of business, uh, and mm-hmm. so it's sort of a you create a portfolio of different uh, different companies that you work with that may or may not be you know in different sectors around the economy. Um, and so it's, it's a very exciting uh, ability to kind of sit at a 60,000 foot view over uh, Silicon Valley or over the startup landscape um, and think about, you know, what's happening in machine learning, what's happening in artificial intelligence or in the Internet of Things, uh, you know, or in how tech is, say, disrupting fashion or media or, or finance. Um, so, so there are any number of ways that you can kind of uh, be involved in the space. Um, you know, my particular past uh, Five or so years has been, you know, working with different early stage technology companies that are, uh, you know, going after applying tech to to different sectors, and that's really where I had the idea for this book. Um, it came out of an observation that um, that I had looking around Silicon Valley, which is a place where you know I've spent the last twenty or twenty five years, uh, and 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 realizing that sort of the trends of the nineteen nineties, where I think uh, technologists were laying down the groundwork and the infrastructure for you know for the internet and for mm-hmm. sort of the technological revolution that we have today, um, they were really laying the groundwork. And I think at that time there was really a requirement that uh, you be kind of deeply technical to to play in that world. And and over time. I think you know as we've moved into this sort of uh, application layer of the technology. Uh, my observation, looking around Silicon Valley, was many of the people that were pitching uh, our firm were people coming out of these various backgrounds and walks of life, people with different academic backgrounds. Um, you know, people, for example, uh, Steve Case, who founded AOL, he's actually a history major um, <laughs> from Williams College. So you know, you, you take kind of a step back and you look at uh, who some of these sort of "quote unquote" technological innovators are, and they're and they're people just like you and me, you know, coming from all different backgrounds, all different walks of life. Um, sure. And it's really more about the problem that they that they've uncovered and how they want to you know apply that technology. Yeah, let's get. We want to get into that uh, here here in a second. Actually, Drew, I think this is our first guest who's ever described himself as a market disruptor. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> you know the the uh, and also the. Uh, I really like the idea of kind of the 60,000 foot view, right? We historians can can kind of relate to that, right? Trying to get a bigger picture uh, on things. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, let's get right to the meat of your book. Who are the techies and who are the fuzzies? Right. So this term, the fuzzies and the techies, um, this term is actually something that I didn't make up, but it, it stems from a reference on Stanford campus in kind of the heart of Silicon Valley. I think it dates back to the 1960s or 1970s uh, on campus where people would 
kind of lightheartedly ask, you know, are you a, are you a fuzzy or are you a techie? Yeah. Do you study sort of the, the hard sciences and the engineering world, um, the computer sciences, or do you study you know, the arts, the humanities, and the social sciences? Um, and it's sort of this uh, this lighthearted moniker of you know calling somebody a techie versus calling somebody a fuzzy. Um, it really goes back, you know, talking about history to uh, a guy named Charles Percy Snow who gave a great lecture in 1959 at, at Cambridge University. Um, and in this lecture, which was dubbed sort of the two cultures lecture, he threw down this idea that, you know, we had this false, uh, this sort of uh, faux opposition between the sciences and the humanities, between these two sides of the same coin, and how really, you know, it was incumbent upon all of us to make sure that, you know, somebody who studies the laws of thermodynamics also reads Shakespeare and somebody who reads, you know, James Joyce might also learn some JavaScript. And so, you know, kind of as we think through uh, these two sides, it's less about, you know, one versus the other, fuzzies versus techies, you know, whether you're one or the other. And it's more about really the blurring lines between these two worlds. Um, because I think, you know, if you look around Silicon Valley or you look around what's what's happening in academia as well, it's really hard to say, you know, somebody who studies uh, history or, or economics or, or political science is quote unquote fuzzy, um, you know, has no hard skills. Uh, and somebody who studies uh, mechanical engineering is somehow, you know, only techie. Because really, if you look at, you know, the trends in mechanical engineering, for example, um, you know, the, the work of David Kelly and, and Tim Brown and some of the people behind IDEO, um, famous kind of design firm, design thinking has really come to the forefront in, you know, the, the engineering world, which is, you know, bringing the sort of soft sides of design and psychology to mechanical engineering, you know, and then you look at something like political science, uh, where statistical modeling has become huge, you know, or game theory is prevalent in economics. Um, so, you know, those subjects have become heavily quantified where, you know, maybe engineering has become softer. So it's really kind of less about one versus the other. And it's more about how it's really uh, blending these two sides kind of creates the confluence of, 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 of things that lead to innovation. Yeah, I mean, it's funny that you bring that up because I know in, in conversations and historical training, I'm still in graduate school, um, big data is a big uh, popular thing to discuss in, in historical work and how can we use some of the um, technologies that enable us to analyze large, large amounts of data to to change the way we write our historical narratives, which I, th- I think would be a great example of uh, yeah. of, yeah. of tech kind of bleeding into 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 historical scholarship. Yeah, yeah, and one one idea there, just kind of on the on the topic of big data which is something that I, I unpack in one of the chapters in the book, um, sort of thinking about the, you know, is data going to suddenly lead to this, this end of uh, this, this kind of uh, emergence of, of knowledge just by itself and sort of the end of hypotheses. And, you know, and this is something that's gone back to Plato and to Sir Francis Bacon. Sure. Um, there's, a, there's a guy uh, at Oxford University, um, Luciano Floridi, who wrote a great book a few years back where he sort of, you know, myth busts this idea and says, you know, you know, in 2000, uh, 2008, Chris Anderson, who wrote a great piece for Wired called sort of the, it wasn't the end of history, but it was sort of the end of, uh, you know, end of, wasn't Francis Fukuyama, it was sort of the yeah, end of uh, say, yeah. hypotheses. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you know, the end of something, right? There's always the end right, of something. Right. Um, and, and really said, you know, well, you know, well, wait a minute, you know, even if we have, uh, you know, the cost of sensors has come down, there are sensors everywhere, you know, on our bodies and our buildings and our cars. You know, even if we're creating all of this data, all of this information, what is it that turns data and information into knowledge? 
Um, and really, it's about people asking questions of the data. You know, it's it's applying a hypothesis a hypothesis to the data. Um, really, is kind of testing and iterating. So I think this this is something that uh, you know, even, as much as we hear about the rise of big data and and the rise of, of artificial intelligence and all these things, um, kind of taking a step back, uh, you know, remembering that you know. In and of themselves, these ones and zeros you know, don't have any objective truth, and and these are still things that require um, massaging and 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 asking questions of. And you know, there's a great there's a great quote uh, which I'll paraphrase and kind of you know attributed to to Voltaire um, about you know judge a man by his questions, not by his answers. Right. And I think you know more and more in the future we're going to have machines generating data, machines bringing things to the attention of humans, but humans really. Um, required to ask the deep questions of those, you know, of those data. Yeah, which machines can't do, right? Um, let's get a little biographical here, maybe for you, autobiographical. Uh, you you describe yourself in the book uh, uh, or in, in materials I read as a fuzzy living in a techie world. Uh, elaborate that on that uh, uh, for us a little bit, because it's it's. I'd love to hear, you know, how you navigate this as a fuzzy and a techie world. You know, tell us a little bit about your your kind of personal journey, your intellectual uh, history, your training um, that makes you say that about yourself. Yeah, I, I guess I've always, uh, you know, like like you and uh, probably like a number of listeners of this podcast. You know, I uh, went to a liberal arts school and I studied political science. I really had sort of a a, a deep um, desire, maybe because of a, a lack of classical education in, in high mm-hmm. school, where I, I really sought sort of the fundamentals of what I thought to be kind of a classic liberal education. So I studied, you know, you know, Greek history and Roman history and Egyptian history, and I studied ancient and medieval and, and modern political theory, and, and I got my degree in political science, political theory, uh, and, and did another degree in grad school on that. Uh, I got like okay. somewhat pragmatic at one point when I was fearful of, of debt, and I said, "Well, maybe I should do an MBA too," which is actually <laughs> a, you know double wrong. <laughs> right, right. You know, it's in Silicon Valley to the it, graduating any program is to the detriment of your credibility in the entrepreneurial world. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so th- those were kind of my uh, kind of my academic training was was through political science and, and international relations, international economic policy in grad school. Um, but all in all, you know, I. I, I had the fortune of growing up in the Bay Area in kind of the heart of Silicon Valley and seeing the boom and the bust of, of the valley. Um, and so, you know, I, I think I always had this mixture of digital and analog and of, of you know, things and devices and really having um, an interest in, uh, in, in the real world things. Like, for example, um, I, I've worked with my, my father and I've built uh, an entire Martin guitar uh, from scratch. Wow. So out of piles of wood, not from a kit, um, but literally taking about 100 hours woodworking, um, building a guitar from scratch. And there's just a real process and a real appreciation for kind of the physicality of, yeah. of things. And, um, and so I guess, I've, you know, as much as I've spent time at Google and Facebook and these, uh, you know, these big tech companies, uh, in my personal life, you know, I subscribed to the print edition of the Financial Times. I was always, I was always the one guy on the Google shuttle with the salmon paper, you know, yeah, like something in the face with the uh, with the paper, and everyone looked at me and they said, you know, can't you just get an iPad? You know, what's your problem? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, for me, there was there is sort of a, a raw discovery, I guess, of of kind of fumbling your way through the paper. And you know, as much as I love. Flipboard and, and various types of you know online consumption and how you can navigate through an iPad. 
there's just something about the physical paper that that I that I still appreciate. So I think, you know, in those ways, I definitely define myself as more of a fuzzy than a techie. Um, right. But at the same time, like I said before, you know, it's really about kind of the confluence of these two sides because obviously. Uh, you know, through economics or political science training, you're exposed to a lot of different, you know, you're, you're using statistical software or maybe you take a class in, in Java or, you, you know, you do something um, that's quote-unquote techie. Um, but really, I think as far as how I identify myself, um, you know, I always saw saw myself on that side of the equation sure. versus the other. You know, and if, you know, if you look around the valley, you know, from from Steve Jobs to, to many individuals, it's, it's often sort of this pairing of, of the two, you know, for every Waz, there's a, there's a Jobs, and for every Mark Zuckerberg, there's a Sheryl Sandberg. Um, and so I think, uh, I think, you know, the premise, one of the premises of the book is that you can really be either of, on either of these sides, um, you know, however you identify. And the truth is that we kind of blend, we blend both. It's, it's funny you bring that up. My, uh, my sister works over at, uh, at Instagram and, Whenever she comes to visit me, she always rolls her eyes when she gets in the car with me because I'm fumbling through all of these uh, CDs because I still like to buy all my music uh, in a kind of physical form because of, of how much of a multimedia experience it is, you know, reading through the liner notes as well as putting the CD, you know, the tactile act of putting the CD in a CD player. But See, you for know, me, it's the CD, you know, any CD kind of tells a story, right? Exactly. You miss the... Yeah. yeah, and it and it forces you to think about it within the boundaries of of, of a single album. So I, I I hear you, Scott. Now, Scott, if I read your book correctly, let's let's sort of dive into the the central thesis here. And you've already touched on this a little bit. Um, if I read your if I read your book correctly, you you argue that the business world has bought into a false narrative, uh, namely that it's the techies that are the real drivers of innovation. Um, elaborate, I know you've talked about this already, but elaborate on that false narrative a little bit more because I, I find too, uh, and we'll, we'll get to this too in a few minutes, but I find that most, um, you know, most parents I encounter as a college professor have also bought into a kind of false narrative about, uh, you know, how one can, what one can do with a liberal arts degree or what one actually can't do, they think, with a liberal arts degree. So, so tell me about this false narrative that the business world has that you, you know, really is, I think, at the heart of your book. Yeah, yeah, happy to. So, I mean, I think, you know, coming from, again, taking, taking it with uh, sort of, my own end of one, you know, personal perspective from this, you know, coming out of Silicon Valley, where I think there are, uh, you know, people presume it to be this sort of walled garden filled with with dropout coders and, you know, quote unquote, programmers, uh, you know, <laughs> a bunch of bros living in, in houses together, you know, coding all night, eating pizza. And while that, you know, that absolutely exists, um, you know, I think this there's sort of this perpetuation of, uh, Kind of the lionization of the techie, you know, is, is kind of what I what I call it. And you know, whether it's you know Mark Andreessen who founded Netscape and is a fantastic venture capitalist at the helm of uh, Andreessen Horowitz, you know, he 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 comes out on balance at the end of the day. And, and I think he he probably largely doesn't fully disagree with the premise of my, of my book. But you know, he has been quoted as saying things like you know the soft skills. Um, you know, people with soft skills are going to work in shoe stores in the future. You know, Vinod Kosla, who is a co-founder of Sun Microsystems and also is now at the helm of another VC firm called Kosla Ventures. You know, he's 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 written medium pieces about the liberal arts being useless. Um, you know, I think everyone thinks of Mark Zuckerberg 
uh, for example, as this you know amazing programmer, right. and you kind of forget the the backstory of you know while he obviously is an amazing programmer, um, that's sort of table stakes in in some sense. Um, but what really gave him the competitive ad- advantage and the edge, I think, is that you know he had that plus he had this sort of background and appreciation and curiosity uh, honed at you know Exeter where he went to you know liberal arts prep school and he read ancient Greek and Latin and Hebrew and French. Um, he actually won a prize at Exeter for classical studies. You know, he uh, he, he was he, he's, he's broader than I think people give him credit for. Obviously, he's gone on to learn Chinese. Um, so, you know, really like a fantastically curious individual, uh, probably you know honed through this process of of, of breadth of exposure. Um, and I think so. Getting at the heart of you know what are the liberal arts, and I think there's this false. Um, false narrative about, you know, liberal arts means unemployed, you know, English major barista. Barista, yeah. uh, (laughs) Yeah, struggling, you know, theater arts major. And really, if you take a step back, you know, the liberal arts uh, in the kind of classical sense actually incorporate mathematics. They incorporate the natural sciences Sciences. like biology and Mm -hmm. physics and astronomy. You know, so they're they're not just uh, kind of, you know, basket weaving on one side and and people that are technical on the other side. and so I think kind of getting back to the what what do they actually mean? Well, you know, they they're they're mislabeled labeled as soft and like we talked about before, you know, if you study history and you know, political science and these various things, they there is a, a massive element of, of quantitative rigor to those. Um, so one, you know, they're not fully soft. And then two, you know, I think that uh, they really incorporate all these different um, all these different uh, ideas and the whole premise is to kind of tug on the mind and challenge assumptions and get people to learn to think and challenge their own biases. You know, and when we look to a world in the future where, um, you know, data and artificial intelligence and all these things are kind of bringing things to the forefront, um, the, and the biggest requirement of us is to kind of question and uh, and be curious and, and and question biases and sort of and push push back on on what's told to us. Um, you know, these are all things that. Uh, are kind of classically trained, I think, in uh, in a liberal arts setting, yeah. and so you know that's that's sort of the uh, the premise the premise of it. And uh, you know, if you look at sort of this this false narrative of of being techies as the drivers of innovation, you know, there is absolutely still uh, a major role for you know for techies to lay infrastructure in new areas. Um, with, with, you know, kind of throughout this ecosystem. I think what, um, what's really profound today, though, is that the, the chunks, um, the, the tools have become more democratized than ever. Mm. And these chunks are becoming larger and larger so that you can kind of assemble pre-assembled, uh, you know, pre-assembled pieces. Uh, so, for example, if you look at even an app like Uber that's, you know, massively complex, um, you know, under the hood, Uber is made up of you know, 10 or 20 different services. So Uber doesn't build its own payment system. They probably use a payment platform. You know, Uber doesn't um, build their own, you know, art, you know, API, for example, to send uh, notifications to your phone when your car is about to arrive. They use a service called Twilio to do that. Mm-hmm. So there are all these pre-assembled blocks that they're calling upon to build this, you know, more and more complicated platform. Um, and so I think, you know, as those blocks get bigger and bigger and as, um, programming becomes more and more abstracted away from learning this really specialized syntax, and it becomes closer and closer to natural language in English. Um, actually, what becomes really powerful is the ability to ask these questions, not sort of the ability to have command over a certain syntax. Um, you know, so to take like uh, an example out of you know, th- look at Google Translate. 
you know, while it's still, you know, it's still really important um, and there's, there's major value for people who are fluent in Russian or fluent in a specific language, mm-hmm. um, Google Translate gives us all sort of the, the rough cut ability to, you know, interact um, in, in those different mediums. And so I think in the same way, you know, as, uh, as these building blocks become more accessible to people, um, people have the ability to kind of interact in these different worlds. Uh, and then it becomes more about how we apply those technologies to useful problems. Sure. And so um, that's really where I think breadth of exposure in the liberal arts and breadth of exposure to different domains gives us the context for how we actually might want to apply the code. And I think that becomes sort of this this real uh, advantage in you know and what drives innovation. So many of these companies that I was seeing sitting in in the venture capital seat were, um, you know, they were, there were techies in the room to be sure. Um, but you know, many times the CEO or many times the the founder, um, was somebody who had come out of a particular walk of life, come out of a different academic background, had a real understanding of a problem. And, you know, the, the kind of biggest barrier to entry and starting company wasn't access to a programmer to code the tech. It was, uh, you know, having an idea that was worth pursuing, uh, and a problem that was big enough to go after. Right. So let's follow up on that a little bit. And you brought up some of the liberal arts skills uh, honed by by Mark Zuckerberg, and um, you, you referenced some of these unnamed techies and in, in some of these venture capital meetings. Uh, but can you give us an example of a, a you know maybe a product that we're really familiar with that uh, wouldn't be where it is if it were not for uh, liberal arts thinking and and leaders who are trained in the liberal arts? Yeah. So I mean there. There are a surprising number of examples, like I mentioned, uh, and I think that was the, the, the premise of, uh, you know, or I guess the impetus to write the book was, you know, wait a minute, this, this narrative that, you know, everyone in Silicon Valley and this walled garden is, is deeply technical and, and, and that's what's giving them their ability to play in this world. You know, and, and I would visit cousins of mine in, you know, in, in Colorado or in, in Boise, Idaho or different parts of America, and they'd say, it's so cool that you're, you know, part of Silicon Valley. I could never really do anything there because I'm not technical. Mm. And that was sort of this, this aha moment to me was like, wait a minute. Um, absolutely. You know, all of us can participate in this world. And, uh, and actually as these building blocks become more accessible, it becomes more and more incumbent upon us to involve this diversity of background and diversity of thought into how we, into how we build our tech. Um, so just, you know, quick pan around, uh, around Silicon Valley. And, and, and when I refer to Silicon Valley, I mean, kind of, technology writ large, because um, in, in many, you know, many parts of the country, this is flourishing. Um, you know, but Sheryl Sandberg, uh, obviously at Facebook, uh, she was an economics major. Mm-hmm. Uh, Susan Wojcicki, who runs YouTube, uh, studied history and literature. Uh, you know, Carly Fiorina, who used to be at the helm of, of HP. Uh, she was a medieval history major. That's right. I knew that. Um, yeah. 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 You know, uh, Alex Karp, who's the CEO of, of, of a big data uh company called Palantir. Uh, he actually has a PhD in, in neoclassical social theory. Wow. Um, so we talk about, you know, I, you know, probably a, uh, an esoteric subject that people would mostly say, well, what's the use of, what's the use of studying that? Well, obviously, uh, you know, he, he found uh, broad application and sort of participating in a, in a, in a, in a data science company uh, like Palantir. Um, but then, you know, it's not just people at the helm in, in sort of management roles. And that's, that's one of the things that I wanted to, to bring to the surface, too. It's, it's actually the product visionaries um, and the 
behind a lot of these companies. So, you know, from Reed Hoffman, who founded LinkedIn, who, you know, was a philosophy major, mm-hmm. um, to Peter Thiel, who founded PayPal, who founded, uh, he also studied philosophy and kind of founded it under almost like a libertarian premise. Um, you know, and then Stuart Butterfield is a great example, uh, the founder of Slack, which is a, a kind of a more modern technology people may or may not be familiar with. But Slack is sort of um, seeking to make email redundant. It's a corporate communications platform. Huh. Um, but through the process of, of creating Slack, uh, Stuart Butterfield's actually been you know, quoted as saying what gave him the, the product clarity of kind of figuring out because um, Slack actually was uh, it was a product feature in a, another company that he had started that failed. And he realized through the process of that failure that the company itself should be around Slack. Uh, should be around this this corporate communications function that they had developed, and uh, the clarity of, of of pursuing that was what he he attributed to his training in philosophy of of kind of peeling back the onion and getting closer and closer to this idea of truth. And you kind of keep pursuing, you keep questioning, you keep pulling back, um, and and eventually you kind of arrive at something that um, more or less seems seems true and, and real. And that's sort of how they uncovered um, this sort of kernel that became the genesis of Slack, which is now you know a multi multi billion dollar company. Right. Um, so those are just a few examples, you know. But yeah. Pinterest, at Ben Silverman, who founded Pinterest, is a political science major. Um, it, the list just goes on and on. Um, and so I think you know that's interesting to look at who's at the helm of these companies. And then there's another you know there's sort of another angle where you can look at um, within these companies how are we involving you know people from the liberal arts and what do those roles kind of look like? Um, you know, I'm happy to, to talk about that a bit too. Yeah. I noticed, uh, I noticed, um, reading about how it seemed to be a kind of informal, uh, or maybe, um, non-technical kind of survey of LinkedIn that you did. Uh, and you, you had a chart, which, you know, if I remember correctly, it was like a third of the people who work at Google have sort of liberal arts majors, and it was like 32% or something like that. And I was just shocked to see the the numbers of employees at these places that that did have liberal arts degrees. Yeah. So, I mean, in full caveat to my, to my, my, my yeah. non-techie. Right. Um, Non-sociological. Yeah, <laughs> a rough, you know, rough sketch, yeah, uh, yeah. which I would, I would love, you know, to uh, engage your, your podcast listeners and, and people that, that may be listening to to do this on their own, but I, I think that there's a ripe uh, social science uh, potential project uh, in, in sort of pulling, for example, LinkedIn data to look at the, the breakdown uh, across these roles and functions of, of different backgrounds and how people are contributing, right. um, you know, and really the need. And so in my really rough, rough sketch, you know, uh, late night research, um, between 35% and roughly 52% I found at different companies wow. um, based on pulling different university data um, look to be from backgrounds that uh, at least according to this sort of Stanford definition of fuzzy and techie yeah. um, would fall in those two categories, um, which is surprising, you know, that to is. a lot of people. And I think, but to people, you know, sitting in Silicon Valley, they kind of, they might roll their eyes at me and say, well, you know, of course they're, you know, yeah, they're, sure. my friend's an anthropology major and she runs, you know, the, the corporate communications department at, at Slack or, right. or whatever it might be. Um, but I think if you look at, uh, you know, sort of the, the prevalence of this technology and how deeply it touches our lives, um, it becomes, you know, more and more important that we, that we ask these questions of who's in the room when these product decisions are being made. Right. Um, and how are we thinking through, um, the applications of, of this tech? Because, um, for example, uh, one, one person I feature in the book, uh, his name is Tristan Harris. 
um, and Tristan, he uh, he sold his company to Google and then became uh, he sold his startup to Google and then became what he called uh, the in-house product philosopher. And this was sort of a self-created uh, title. And he he went around campus and he asked questions of product managers and and he brought um, the, the the Buddhist philosopher Thich Nhat Hanh to campus to mm-hmm. talk to product managers and he sort of brought these uh, these questions to people's minds of you know is is our tech still what Jobs Steve Jobs called a bicycle for the mind, or has it really become a slot machine in our pocket? Yeah. Um, you know, when you think about your always-on device in your pocket, um, how there are very few number of people in very few companies, mostly in Silicon Valley, mostly Caucasian males, probably in their 20s and 30s, um, making product decisions that have the impact of massive scale for probably one of the first times in human history, you can touch a billion people with one product decision. Um, you know, and, uh, and so and how is this having an impact on, on people's lives? You know, uh, Linda Stone, who was previously an executive, um, at Apple and spent time at MIT, you know, she talks about a concept of, of kind of semi-sync or continuous partial attention where all of us are, you know, maybe having a conversation, but then our phone buzzes and we check Instagram and our phone buzzes again and we send a text. Um, and we have this sort of frequency of interruption that, um, is variable. And because of its, it's sort of a variable reward, you know, BF Skinner and, and sort of uh, psychology would tell us, well, this becomes pretty addictive pretty fast. Um, and so really, you know, Tristan likens our, our phones in our pockets to, you know, slot machines and yeah. what, you know, uh, instead of a one-armed bandit, it's kind of become a one-fingered bandit where, mm-hmm. you know, with the swipe of a finger, uh, you can get this uh, this dopamine hit and this this stimulus. So, you know, how are we thinking about these types of questions? Um, who's in the room when that's happening? Sure. Uh, should there be, you know, uh, an FDA? Should there be a food pyramid? Should there be design standards? Should there be, you know, a way that we think about um, the same way that you walk up walk up into Starbucks and you can order a frappuccino um, versus a black coffee, but you know, you also see that the Frappuccino has 400 calories and the black coffee has 80 calories and uh-huh. you can make a decision, but at least you're sort of privy to, you know, what that decision entails. Yeah. Yeah. Drew, your, your, uh, your sister works at Instagram. You Correct. mentioned and she yeah. was a creative writing, right? When that, when, when your book came across our desk and we were interested in having you on, I, I also knew in the back of my mind that I kind of already believed your thesis because my, <laughs> yeah. you know, my sister is a founding content strategist at at Instagram and was a creative writing major. So, very much, um, I, I've heard I've heard this this story before. And, you you know, know, around also, around the Thanksgiving table. You know, as I, as I'm as I'm listening to Scott talk, too, we need, you know, every every corporation like this should have an in house historian, absolutely, or an in, <laughs> right, or an in house humanist. To, to, again, it's that seat on the table, right, Scott? Yeah. That's important because it brings just a completely different way of thinking uh, to the whole to the whole conversation. Yeah, resume available right. on request. Yeah. Well, our time right. is our time is just about up here. Um, but I would be remiss if I didn't ask you one sort of practical question that's kind of near and dear to my heart. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Make a case, okay, to a parent uh, as to why their child might forego a, a sort of business degree or a computer science degree or computer science or business major uh, for a liberal arts degree or liberal arts major. Uh, I am someone who spends a lot of time the last 15 years of my life, basically trying to recruit high school students 
into the humanities. So uh, I could use all the help I can get on this one. Uh, but but make that pitch for me. Help me help, t- teach me how to make that pitch. <laughs> all right. Well, I'll give it. I'll give it my best shot. Good. good. <laughs> well, so you know, going back to the premise of the book, you know, I think it's it's less about making the argument of. Uh, should you be technical or should you be not technical, right? We all know that in our future world, uh, you know, data and access to technology and you know, fluency with technology is, is hugely important. So I think number one is it's to have the notion that when you finish college or you finish you know, high school, college, grad school, whatever it is um, for you, that your education is not capped at that moment and you don't have sort of this carte blanche, you know, high, hall pass to to non-redundancy for the rest of your life. It's more about thinking um, that your education is always in beta. Um, and that's uh, an engineering term for thinking that you know, your education is always a work in progress. And so um, thinking about kind of these modular steps of what, you know, what we should learn uh, at the beginning, you know, I think we should learn uh, to think, to be passionate about ideas, uh, mm-hmm. to be creative, to be sort of exposed to a broad swath of, of different disciplines um, to kind of tug on our mind. I think, uh, in, you know, in, in my mind, that's that's a liberal arts background with um, with exposure additionally to, you know, technical literacy. So I think that if we can think about, you know, could we teach uh, engineering in a Socratic way or could we teach ethics related to decisions in machine learning? Um, you know, could we, uh, can we blend sort of what the questions of autonomous vehicles uh, in urban environments are going to look like and talk about, you know, Kantian versus deontological, uh, you know, or versus consequentialist uh, ethical frameworks? You know, so can, yeah. can we think about these uh, apply philosophy, apply, you know, history um, through some of the, you know, mediums of today? And so, you know, I would say uh, in sort of making this case, you know, look at what the world could potentially look like in the year 2050 or 2060. You know, if you're graduating today, um, that world is going to look uh, fundamentally different. And I think that we don't we don't have any clue, you know, what that's going to be. You know, there's 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 so much uh, hype around um, artificial intelligence and autom- automation taking over. You know, there's an Oxford study that said 47% of U.S. jobs are at high risk of automation. Um, McKinsey, uh, the consulting firm, came out with a study in January that said actually only 5% of jobs are fully automatable and technological capability is only this first step. There's obviously adoption, there's, you know, capital stock turnover if you're talking about vehicles there's all these things that will happen that as this transition will take place over time but i think what we can be confident of you know looking forward many years um is that we're going to have an interaction between technology and human um and so mckinsey makes the point looking at 800 jobs um that 30 percent of tasks within roughly 60 percent of those jobs could be automated could be scripted to some degree where they could be programmed and so actually if you look at for example, a business major um, where maybe you learn accounting, maybe you learn how to audit, do bookkeeping, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, These are actually the more scriptable tasks. These are actually the things that can be more easily programmed. Um, You know, if you look at, uh, I think think they said something around 86% of auditing and bookkeeping um, in the retail sector, for example, is something that could could be done. Um, you know, additionally, if you look at wealth management or something that's even uh, kind of up the stack in, in the finance world, um, you know, robo-advisors are really taking over a lot of those types of jobs or, or really um, helping supplement uh, people as they, as they give guidance on, for example, you know, where to invest in the stock market. Right. Um, so, so really what becomes more and more important and more prevalent 
uh, in this future world uh, is the ability to ask questions, right? The ability to kind of um, have this uh, exposure to ideas, to be able to interface with technology, to be able to interface with people. Um, and so I think to the, to the degree that we can kind of keep our educations in beta, you know, not rest on our laurels, uh, try to upskill and, and, and be fluent as much as we can with the techno technological tools, but also kind of uh, ground it in this uh, exposure to a broad set of ideas and a broad set of, of passions and curiosity. I really think that that's, that's where we kind of come out um, on balance with, you know, uh, with the liberal arts. Yeah, good, good advice. I'm taking notes here <laughs> as, you're, as you're talking. <laughs> hey, Scott, this, this has been a great, fascinating conversation. Um, and it's a conversation I think we've been wanting to have for a while here since we started the podcast. Um, but uh, thank you so much for taking some time. Tell us a little bit how to, how to get your book, um, where we can find more about you. Do you have a website? Yeah, so the website, uh, you can go to fuzzytechie.com. I love it. And yeah. the book is uh, is more or less sold uh, most places that, that books are sold. So I'd say, you know, whether it's Barnes & Noble or Amazon or, okay. or any, uh, pick your favorite. And, are you, uh, and heading, um, are you heading out on a tour or anything like that? Yeah, we'll be, I'm based in Brooklyn, New York at the moment, but it will be in Seattle and San Francisco, uh, Denver, Colorado, um, Chicago, right. Boston. So, so it'll be all over the place. We can get those dates uh, from the website. Yeah, we'll um, we'll have. I have a Facebook group as well. That's okay. just Facebook.com/slash Fuzzy Techie, okay. and that's where I'm posting most of the events and, and various things that we're doing. Well, get out there, folks, and get this book, um, the Fuzzy and the Techie. Why Liberal Arts Will Rule the Digital World. We've been talking with the author of that book, Scott Hartley. Scott, thanks again for your time. Thank you guys so much. Okay, Great thank you. Chat. Drew, that was certainly a, a different kind of interview for the podcast, but a very revealing and fascinating one. Yeah, I, I, I think it's important that we, obviously use, using a digital medium here to broadcast our ideas, we need to continue to have these conversations with the tech world or else, you know, we're just uh, uh, preaching to the choir. Yeah, I mean, we've been talking about this all episode, but I'd love to, like, sort of uh, clone Scott. How about that for a, for a humanities thing, right? It, it, reminds me, it reminds me of the poster I have up in my, my office. Um, science can teach us uh, how to clone a Tyrannosaurus Rex, but the humanities might might tell us that it's a bad idea, right? <laughs> yeah. But if we could clone Scott, which, you know, the humanities tells us may not be a good idea, but if we could, right, for a second, uh, I'd love to bring him into these meetings uh, I have with parents when I try to sell them on uh, – on the, on the history major and how the history major can lead you to all kinds of different places, including the Silicon Valley, right? Absolutely. Well, and lest we put the blame on parents who are scared to foot the bill for a history major, I mean, we need to learn as, as historians working in, in teaching and working with students, we need to learn that our, our goal, as you mentioned at the top of the episode, is not to make little professors, but actually to prepare people through robust liberal arts education to be very versatile in a in a rapidly changing job market, and you know, she came up in the interview. My sister majored in creative writing at a small liberal arts school, and the reason she has proven successful is because she didn't see, she didn't get limited by her dreams of being a, a wonderful poet. Although she is, she's a fabulous poet, but she went on, got internships, and really grinded and figured out how that creative writing education was applicable to the tech world. And now, well. I'm a grad student, and she's 
Well, Drew, got a big position in the Silicon Valley. Well, so. Drew, it's kind of like you, right? You know, I mean, you're you're studying history, but at the same time, your real career is once we make it big, is going to be the producer of the greatest podcast in the world. <laughs> let's hope. Let's hope. <laughs> you know, my, my, my sister would call this my side hustle. Your side? No, <laughs> no, we're going to make this center to your vocation here. Main right? hustle. Let's make yeah. this the main hustle. The main hustle. I like that. Um, no, this has been a conversation. Like I said, we've been waiting to have for a while. And it's it's been really really fun having family day for you here, Drew. I know, I uh, today, right? We got your sister referenced. We got your mom coming in uh, and talking a little bit. Our first kind of uh, sponsor who comes into the studio. So it's I think it's been a great episode. Absolutely, and I think this is a conversation we should keep continuing. Hey, if you're on uh, uh, social media, you like this episode, give it a retweet. Give it a uh, dedicate a post. Talk about your favorite favorite part and help spread the word because I mean that's it's really what matters here is we need to be telling more and more people why the liberal arts matters we need to put pressure on our politicians to continue to to fund the liberal arts and fund the humanities fund the arts right you know it's not just the NEH the National Endowment for the Humanities that's under the axe these things are really important for who we are and so your work now as listeners and as supporters of the humanities and as supporters of the podcast is to continue to make your voices heard. And, and sometimes it's as easy as a, as a retweet. Or head over to the Patreon site and help <laughs> yeah. us out even more. We could really use it as we try to keep this thing going. I guess that's a wrap then, Drew. Absolutely. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed this episode. I hope you learned something today. And as usual, may your way of improvement always lead home. This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewayofimprovement.com. This episode is brought to you through the generous support of Lisa DeGuardi, Ron Schooler, and our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. We also want to thank David Onion for his support. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher so others may more easily find this podcast. The podcast was recorded at the High Center Studios on campus at Messiah College. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Scott Hartley. Our studio producer is Josh Lowry. I've been your producer, Drew Durley Hermeling, and your host, as always, is John Fia. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.